Truth is Trouble is the book, The Strange Case of Israel Folau, or How Free Speech Became So Complicated. And Malcolm Knox is the author. Please make him welcome. Let me tell you a little bit about Malcolm. He's the former literary editor and award-winning cricket writer of the Sydney Morning Herald. And he has, how many Walkley Awards do you have now? Four? Is it two? Three? Three. I've got it, okay. His novels include A Private Man, winner of the Ned Kelly Award, Jamaica, which won the Roderick Award, The Life, The Wonder Lover, and Bluebird, lots of non-fiction titles, and including Batman's War, Bradman's War, rather. <laughs> That, that, that'll be the next one, Batman's yeah. War. Well, actually, ba Bradman versus Batman would be great. And uh, that uh, was shortlisted in the Prime Minister's Literary Awards uh, in the, I'm allowed to say, a rose between two thorns, <laughs> Nikki Gemmell. Please make Nikki welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thirteen novels, if you don't mind. Four works of non-fiction, including her most recent, The Ripping Tree, their books have been translated into 22 languages. How many of them have, can you read? One. One, <laughs> Pathetic. That, that's, that's curable public school for you. <laughs> the French literary magazine Lyra has included her in a list of what it says are, and we have to concur, the 50 most important writers in the world, if you don't mind. <laughs> Nikki uh, Penns, yes. <laughs> Nikki uh, writes a weekly column for the Australian newspaper and she writes novels for kids. And David Hunt, do you know David? He's wonderful. He's the author of Gert, the Unauthorised History of Australia, which won the 214 Indie Award for non-fiction. 214, 1800 years ago, that's yes. how I've been writing. I've, I've, I've got an update here. True Gert <laughs> was published in 2016, the third in the collection, Gert Nation, will be on the shelves at the end of the year. David's book for children is entitled Nose, The Nose Pixies, and it's about the cocaine trade in fairy world. <laughs> Thank you for that, David. He's <laughs> got, got a new book coming out soon as well. Now, oh my goodness me, this book. Can I just show you how many little post-it <laughs> notes I've got in there? Sort of, like a Christmas tree. Uh, it looks at the fault lines which were opened up by the Israel Folau case. Religion, sexuality, class, race, power, social media, cancel culture. Uh, Malcolm very helpfully says that his small book is about a large subject, free speech, and that would be, it would be perhaps better served by a library. Thank you very much, Malcolm. So we should be able to knock this off in about an hour. <laughs> To kick off with you, Malcolm, uh, you say that, uh, well, you ask, I guess, in a time when so many people are violently certain of their views, how should the uncertain react? Uh, do we have to join a team, he asks, or is there a team for those who simply can't make up their minds? So I, I think we'll start off with that. Um, hands up here who agrees with ambivalence and hands up those who don't and hands up who are undecided. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. That looks like all of us. <laughs> so let's go to that first. Is there any room for ambivalence in today's uh, world, in today's media landscape, do you think, Malcolm? Why do you say that we have to live with ambivalence? Um, <clears throat> I don't think we have a choice for, for any of us who think. Um, it, it's not only being undecided about, about different issues. Um, within the, the Falau case, which we'll, we'll just take as read that most people are vaguely familiar with, um, it, it was also that you could be on one side, on one aspect of the issue, but on the other side in another aspect. So you found yourself... Um, if, there, if there were six issues, you might be on that team for three and that team for the other three. And I think with Lau, nearly everybody would have, would have been uh, in a kind of mixture of teams. And that is, you know, your question is, um, is it tenable? Um, in, if you work in media as I do, working, you know, writing for, for newspapers, 
it is almost untenable because um, there are so many incentives for, uh, for you know, strength and certainty and taking an extreme point of view. And by incentives, I mean, you know, the number of the number of clicks, the number of hits, the number of comments, the the amount of reaction you get. Um, there is now a, a you know well-established reward system for extreme points of view, and you know, um, I'll be interested to hear what, uh, what you say about this and yeah. what um, what Nikki and David say about it. Um, and I should just say here that um, we're going to get into the um, intricacies, or not the intricacies, but the more detail on the Falau case in a moment. So don't worry if you, you're not quite up with where we are. I just want to set the general frame of the fact that um, no one here is going to be able to give you an opinion that's worth anything as the afternoon wears on. Um, because we're all ambivalent, I guess. Or are we? Um, yes. So yeah, well, I, I describe myself as aggressively moderate. Um, <laughs> and, um, but, but I have noticed um, in, in my newspaper work, uh, the more nuanced, the more ambiguous, the more clever, uh, the fewer readers it gets. Hmm. Um, wow. You get more readers yeah, by going to the extreme. Okay. Well, and, and this mm. le ne leads us very neat neatly to you, Nikki. You're mm. right for the Australian. Mm. Um, I guess it, you you do have the luxury there of being able to write once a week. But how do you arrive at um, an opinion that you, you feel quite firmly about, quite strongly about, and then say, well, look, I'm ready to launch this thing into the world. Uh, I'm in a uh, perhaps uncomfortable position within The Australian because I, I basically when they asked me to do this column in the Weekend Australian magazine a decade ago, I thought, oh, gosh, they're asking me. And I um, emailed my husband <laughs> and I titled it Sleeping with the Enemy. Basically, should I? And to The Australian's credit, I've never been censored mm -hmm. for what I do. Mm -hmm. I have complete freedom over whatever I write. And for me, I loved your description there, for me I would be provocatively centrist leaning towards the left. And, and that is not really something that many of the columnists in the Australians, that they would not be that way leaning. That's um, a mastery of understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, um, often, uh, I'm, for me, it's just, I'm not even thinking, is this extreme what I'm saying or whatever? And I often have no idea what column is going to go off. Like a couple of years ago, I wrote about how I thought maybe there should be more female gynaecologists and I think there's a little bit too many male gynaecologists. My female editor of the magazine thought, yeah, you know, just another column, off you go. We had no idea that that would explode in the way it did. Mm. I can't pick it. I don't set out to be deliberately um, one way or the other, it's just my world, it's my reality. But if you look at the comments under my column week after week after week, the hatred, the um, abuse that I get, because I think people don't, the regular Australian readers don't want me in their space and want me to go away mm -hmm. and be quiet. So I don't engage with so any of that now. Is, I don't it, read it. is it now become a sort of a... Um uh, a, a, an act of faith for you that you stay there? Do you well, I, I'm not going to say who other, other people have approached me about jumping into a more comfortable forum, perhaps in terms of what I write. I have felt long, I've thought long and hard about this because I'm not a natural fit for the Australian. But my conclusion is why preach to the converted? Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it feels so much more powerful, dangerous, effective, if I can be in a place where I can just present a different opinion to even one reader, a handful of readers, to get them to think outside of their bubble, we all exist in bubbles, but for them to have a broader perspective in some way. I mean, it's, I, I feel like I've shot my literary career in the foot by writing where I do. Um, but I, I feel like it's worthwhile okay. doing that. No, 
Of course, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to quote here from um, uh, Malcolm's book. And I think this is an interesting one to put to you, David, as an historian. The challenge is to live uh, with the pains of uncertainty, to engage passionately without knowing the answers, to be able to cohabit with anxious questions rattling around in our heads. And I direct that to you because, of course, you, know, you would know as an historian, I guess, that never one, one is never in full receipt of the facts anyway. And of course, with hindsight, so many things change. Do you, are you happy with uncertainty? Could you dwell in the land of the uncertain? I think as a historian, you spend all of your time dwelling in the land of the uncertain because the fog of time is a heavy fog often. I think one of the things about the past and about the notion of civil debate in the past, is it's very different to today. Mm. So you had people writing letters into the local newspaper and, and they would carry on a debate uh, for months on the same sort of issue, yeah, yeah. often under a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, very sort of cordial, you know, my dear sir, I've read your column, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. and you'd get, that, you'd get that, that polite response. So it was a very different era where people could freely debate. One of the things I found um, difficult in terms of dealing with ambiguity is you often don't know who the people are who are saying these things. So politicians write. Nearly all of the 19th century politicians were trained as journalists. Mm. They all write uh, their own opinions sometimes and then they adopt pseudonyms. Somebody like Alfred Deakin uh, would actually adopt a completely different persona whilst pocketing 500 pounds from the British press <laughs> and would write pieces attacking himself as Prime Minister <laughs> in Australia. Wow. Uh, uh, he would, he would be, he'd, he'd adopt the persona of a free trader while Deacon was a protectionist, and he'd get stuck into himself. He regarded this as great sport. Uh, but you can't always, I think in the past, you can't always tell what people's motivations mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. Their motivations were more opaque. Yep. And when you're actually pretending to be somebody else to shitbag yourself, uh, that does make it confusing as a historian because that information about Deakin wasn't known until mm. really after he died. Mm. Yeah. So uh, Matt Canavan could not be a real person, is that? Could <laughs> <laughs> we take something away from that there? I, I never thought it was suggested that he was a real oh, person. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I guess he was asking there. You know, I mean, I started out in newspapers, Geelong Advertiser, mm. when Everyone is? Yeah. Oh. Everyone oh, yeah. is? Oh, what a pain. Um, yeah, so I when I was um, in my teens and no one got their hands on the op-ed page. I was told quite categorically, you are never writing an opinion piece. Maybe when you're 60, <laughs> and probably a bloke, I suspect, <laughs> will you get your hands on the op-ed page. The one thing you talk about, which is a, you know, tweet something there for me was, you know, where people used to write letters to the newspaper. There was something about that newspaper, though, back in those days that it was sort of like an edifice, it was a fortress. Yep. And really mm. the general public didn't really have access to that, apart from a few well-chosen letters. And so the democratisation of opinion, I think in many ways, has been a really good thing. Where, it's, where we're heading and where we're ending up, I don't know. I was uh, reading a piece, um, Tim Berners-Lee, who um, you know, invented the World Wide Web, he says he believes that the internet is a teenager and it's in its adolescence. Hmm. And maybe when we all grow up a bit and learn how to use it, it will be a very, very different beast. But mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not that. It needs to be sent to its room right now, I think. <laughs> so let's go to the social media post that caused all the ruckus in the first place in 2019. In the wake of a decision in Tasmania for uh, the optional listing of gender on birth certificates, Israel Folau uh, uh, put a post, posted, 
Uh, and before we go into exactly what he posted, tell us a little bit about Israel Folau, why his voice was listened to in the first place, Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, or if his voice was listened to. Um, he, was a, he was a footballer um, who had been a, a star in the National Rugby League from a young age. Um, he did a, a very high-profile switch to uh, AFL, to Aussie Rules, uh, as the kind of poster boy for the new team in Sydney, which was the Greater Western Sydney Giants. Um, he won them a lot of publicity. He didn't win much else. He was, he was pretty hopeless for a couple of years. Then he jumped to Rugby Union, um, and by this stage he was the... Um, certainly the highest paid uh, and the most prominent in marketing materials player for um, a, a code which was fighting for um, uh, not quite survival but certainly fighting for relevance in a in a crowded media landscape so that that was that was I guess why he had the profile he had um, I'm still to this day unsure whether he really has and ever had a concept of, of who was listening when he spoke. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, uh, his first post was um, uh, in an Instagram one-on-one -on -one conversation with, mm -hmm. with a reader, um, but it was, it was public and um, he, he, he said gay people were, were going to hell. Um, and then he was warned not to do it again by Rugby Australia, his employer, um, and uh, in 2019, uh, he he did it again. Yep. Basically, said the same thing. Uh, if you don't repent, if you're gay, well, I've got the and you don't I've repent, yeah. I've got the wording here. This was the post: warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, atheists, idolaters. Hell awaits you. Repent. Only Jesus saves. Look, I must admit I was one of those who jumped on Twitter and posted something like, oh, well, five out of eight ain't bad, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I'm glad there's only one hell. I could have been sent to six or seven. <laughs> but uh, then again, oh, by the way, I looked on Twitter, it's still there, and it has 75,000 likes. <gasps> so there you go. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is, I just want to quickly say this before we move on a little bit. Um, the piece that I really liked that came after that quote was a piece that was written by a theologian who says that it's, well, it's, a, it's in the letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. It's a misquote. There are no homosexuals in there because there wasn't a name for that no. activity then, A. And B, there was no hell wasn't... Um, hell wasn't really formulated in the way it is now because these were evangelists and they believed that Jesus was returning so there was in fact kind of no hell you know at, at, at the time that this quote ostensibly comes from anyway moving on from that now I was able to make a joke out of it I thought oh gosh you know I don't believe in hell so I don't believe in you know I think you know, they could be going off to fairyland for whatever um, I care. But the journalist David Marr wrote, the fact is condemning gays to hell is vilification. I reckon he is free to preach his horrible beliefs, but his freedom shouldn't trample on my freedom or the freedom of anyone else. And you point out in your book, uh, Malcolm, that you're not gay, I'm not gay. It didn't land like that with us. It was, a, it was a different thing. I wonder if you can tell me about some of the strange bedfellows uh, that came, <laughs> that found themselves. You mentioned that you alluded to this a little earlier. You know, you found yourself on this side or that side. Tell us about who hopped into, well, not metaphorically speaking, bed uh, with each other after this. Um. Well, the, the strangest was the Australian Christian Lobby, um, which, which adopted Israel Folau and um, became his uh, financial um, uh, underwriter, if you like. Uh, and, and I went to the Australian Christian Lobby's um, annual conference, which was a, a kind of a harrowing event in many ways uh, for, for me because they were they were claiming credit for the last federal election they were claiming and not without not without um evidence they were kind of saying that the prime minister and the the current federal government now owes the christian lobby um for what it did to get them over the line in the last election um 
So that, that's one bedfellow who, um, they're, they're strange, you know, because they're strange in different ways, but they're a strange bedfellow, bedfellows in the sense of um, not normally aligned. Mm. Uh, one of them was the, the highly esteemed um, progressive Melbourne lawyer, Josh Bornstein, who wrote uh, on numerous occasions um, in support of Folau insofar as he was writing in support of an employee's uh, freedom to have whatever beliefs they, they want to have in their own private time. And, and if you apply that across the board, often it's employees with very progressive beliefs who've been stomped on um, by uh, their employer. And, mm. and so if you're taking it um, uh, from a, a liberal law point of view, um, it, it, it's hard to it's hard to argue against Folau because he he was um, booted out by his employer under pressure from corporations worried about their their image. Of course, Josh Bornstein. Well, their sponsorship. They were there were the right. threats to withdraw sponsorship, and most notably from Qantas and yeah. Alan Joyce, who's gay. Yeah. So you know yeah. this was um, th this was very much germane to Bornstein's case, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and then of course he gets jumped on uh, by members of his team who are saying, well, how can you be uh, on, on the same side as Falau, who, who is you know, now persona non grata? But the other interesting thing too that you tease out in your book is that there were teammates who said, look, I don't agree with what Israel has said here about gays, but because he is uh, a Pacific Islander and we have a history of white colonialism um, he, and he is being vilified you know, for his race as much as anything. Yeah. So this is where it became incredibly complex, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, an example there was the commentator Ruby Hamad, who's who's you know a well-known progressive voice and an anti-racism voice, um, and she said, well, you know, you've got you've got chickens coming home to roost here because white colonialists imposed this form of religion uh, upon people in in Tonga, where where Falau's family had come from, and um, uh, you know it's it's now rebounding back uh, mm. upon those same people. So, you know, she, she was saying, if you're condemning Falau, you, you know, you're, you're playing a bit of a, 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 a post-colonial game, which is unfair uh, and, and in its essence, a racist view. Yeah. And we'll go to David here. Um, there was also um, a lot of argument about the brand of religion um, mm. that uh, Falau uh, practices, and I was—I uh, know that you have a book coming out about religion in Australia. But people would be very surprised to know the the, the uh, role of evangelism in Australia. It's not a new wrinkle at all. No, uh, there's actually a, an Australian uh, John Alexander Dowie in the late 19th century, who's the father of the modern Pentecostal movement all around the world mm -hmm. and, and in America. So um, Australia's had this complex relationship with religion. At the back end of the 19th century, you've got one group of Australians who are moving away from religion as Darwin and geology, and they're questioning these literal biblical truths. And you've got another group, the, the, the evangelists, who are really getting behind the literal interpretation of the Bible. And they were an influential group, uh, particularly um, some of the Protestant evangelists in South Australia. And it was a South Australian bootmaker uh, Dowie, who becomes a co congregational preacher. And there's this weird intersection between religion and marketing, where he comes to believe that he is the new prophet Elijah. He goes off to the United States and founds the Zion Apostolic Catholic Church. Um, he has bodyguards, he's got his own private train, and he makes huge amounts of money through mail order and, and telephone faith healing. So people ring up and say, I've got a sore foot. And he, he says, all right, I've prayed for you. Give me 10 bucks. And he becomes this hugely successful, uh, the, the precursor to televangelism. Mm, mm. And that movement effectively starts um, in many ways in, in Victoria and South Australia uh, in, in the sort of 1870s, 1880s. Mm. 
And uh, yes, so um, a, a very strong thread, though, of that variety of religion right through Australian history. Very, very, and there are all sorts of competing religious views, and you see that in the Falau case today. Falau's views are not mainstream uh, Christian religious views. Uh, in fact, he thinks everybody who's not a member of his own very small Pacifica church in, in the western mm. suburbs is going to hell because all of these other Christians, you know, baptise people the wrong way, uh, you mm. know, look at people a bit funny on, on a Saturday or a Sunday, they can't quite make up their mind. So you've got these, the idea that we have one homogenous religious mm. view mm. is wrong mm. and you'll have many people uh, of many different Christian and other faiths holding different views on, I think, the Falau case as well. You, you, mm. you won't have a, a unanimity of view mm. lining up behind Israel. Yeah. yeah well, well, exactly right. They're not that keen on the Catholics, of course, being no. idolaters. The um, important thing, Wendy, is that as, as religious belief has, has declined uh, steadily in Australia in the last two generations, the one exception within Christianity, the one exception to that is yeah. Pentecostalism, which has yeah. grown. Yeah. 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 And uh, the first Pentecostalist uh, head of state in the world we have now, <laughs> I believe. Hooray! <laughs> uh, Nikki, you, I, I was going back and through some of your writings. Um, I mean, oh, people hate that when you oh, God, my God, what did I <laughs> did say? Did I really I write remember. that? <laughs> um, but there, were, was, there was a column of yours that I was reading about religion, and uh, you said in some ways that you thought uh, that you did agree with what, uh, perhaps a lot of what the Christian lobby was on about, that, it, that Chris, Christians are in some ways discriminated against. I know Malcolm, uh, your son, joined the evangelist uh, movement almost it, it, because he felt uh, that he, he was discriminated against as a Christian. Can you talk to, to, to that? Do you still I honestly that? can't remember writing oh, that. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. It's fine. Oh, okay. I, I just can't think why I would have said that. <laughs> oh. I've got the column. I yeah. <laughs> no. But I, was but it on the patriarchy within the Anglican Church and when? No, I don't think so. I think you were talking about too the idea of um, you, that you hoped that your children would be able to, you know, that they would study comparative religion yeah. also as a way, yeah, as yeah. a way to understand. Uh, you know, the, the country they live in, the, the civilisation that they live in. Yes, I might have written it about the time when my son, my eldest son was doing the HSC and I must admit I write about my children less and less now because they get very cross at me and they say, I'm not telling you anything anymore because you put me in the column and call me the teenager. <laughs> so that might have been the last time I spoke about him in a column, which was a good few years ago. Mm. But I did... I, I really loved the fact that he was doing comparative religion because basically it was just expanding his, his brain and it was giving him knowledge of other ways of thinking. Mm. And, you know, I think for me, I don't want different opinions shut down. I don't want debate shut down. Mm -hmm. When I lived in London for 15 years, we lived on Fleet Street in this little bedsit at the start, and there was this little old guy on, you know, at 11.30 on a Saturday night. Um, he would have all the 10 different national newspapers. They were dumped in big bundles on the Saturday night. And my husband and I, he's a journo, and, and we'd rush out at 11.30 at night. We would buy all 10 papers, including News of the World and all the rest of it, also the Sunday Times and The Observer and the Sunday Telegraph. We wanted to get the breadth of opinion of what this country is. We didn't just want to read The Guardian and The Observer. We also wanted to read The Daily Mail. So, you know, I... I, you know, Israel's tweet, I might not agree with it, but it tells me so much about that world and his thinking, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. We learn about humanity, we learn about the breadth of complexity that makes us human. So I don't want to shut all that situation down. And mm. so when my, you know, my son said he was doing comparative religion, fantastic please learn about Judaism or, you know, uh, the Muslim world. I, I want you to be as informed as you can. Mm. I think it would be very interesting if he was a Muslim 
mm. or a Hindu and had said the same thing. I think there mm. would have been mm. quite a different yep. response and lots of people who are happy to attack him as a Christian would have held back more if he was a Muslim and you would have had some of the people who were defending him yes. as a Christian who would have come out strongly against. I think it's not just what was said, mm. it was the context and who it was said by that, that informed mm. some of that response. Yes, Alan Jones might have batted for the other, other team uh, if he'd, if yeah. he'd uh, been from that uh, background. An amazing thing about Falau is that two years later he, he still can't get registered to play uh, football and when you look at the, the people who can play football and what they've done, <laughs> <laughs> um, saying a few things from his, his religious point of view seems like small beer. Um, however, what he did run into was a kind of a counter-religious, uh, um, I won't call it a religious cult or a religion, but um, a movement which, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the online woke movement mm -hmm. um, which has the the power and influence that used to be attributed to a religion and so it's become for people like Rugby Australia, the National Rugby League, anybody considering um, giving Falau um, a game, mm -hmm. it's not worth their while. Mm -hmm. uh, it's simply, it's going to create so much grief for them uh, uh, online, yeah. um, uh, they've got an army um, of people, some well-intentioned, some not, uh, that, um, and this is where the corporate influence comes in, you know, corporations are inherently conservative about reputation, and if they're dictating what a sporting organisation is going to do because they fund them, you've got this kind of um, cascade of um, risk-averse behaviour where, uh, it's just easier for them to say no. And it's not about what he did and the, mm. the, the weight of what he did anymore. It's, mm. it's about their own conservative um, agenda. Yeah, well, let's go on to this um, uh, idea of uh, offence. Uh, I might throw in here a quote from the comedian Ricky Gervais. Offence is taken, not given. Yeah. No need to disarm the world. People like the idea of freedom of speech until they hear something they don't like. And when people say he crossed the line, I say, I didn't draw the line, you did. It's relative, it's subjective. Offence is the collateral damage of free speech and it's no reason not to have free speech. You would agree with that, Nikki? Yeah, I, I just feel like we need a, a plethora of opinion and experience. Mm. Um, so, yes, um, I feel like there's pushback. There's starting to be this groundswell of, like, you know, people who've been cancelled. Um, there's kind of this, particularly in the UK, I can, mm -hmm. amongst women who've spoken out in terms of what happened to JK Rowling um, and various others, I can, I can feel this kind of, I think the UK government itself is starting to say, hang on, this is going too far. Mm, mm. And for me, as a novelist, first and foremost, I'm interested in everyone mm. and what makes them tick. Yeah, sure. I don't want people shut down. Um, I just don't think that's a healthy democratic mm. world for us. Yeah. And uh, you're uh, nodding away there, David? I am. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a satirist, and I deliberately try and push social boundaries to make political mm. comment. Mm. Um, so I will always offend some people. Mm. Um, uh, I accept that as, as, as part of my brief. And satire is a way of speaking truth to power. Um, it's a way of taking uh, a high and mighty issue and poking fun of it and having people laugh at it and cut it down to size a bit. A very, a very Australian mm. thing to do. Mm. Um, when you can't do that, when somebody says, well, I am offended, therefore you should stop doing that, we will live in a very, very anodyne, bland world where the only form of speech is vanilla, uh, cream, puff, it will be very, very, very dull. Mm. And so I think that people should be entitled to 
express their views and express their beliefs and they should anticipate that other people will disagree and shoot them down. But the idea of silencing people sits in my craw. I understand it for things like hate crime uh, and for promoting abuse and, uh, and violence, mm -hmm. but I think I probably have a much higher spe uh, free speech tolerance than most people on the progressive left, which is where I see myself as, uh, mm -hmm. as sitting. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I probably have different views on, on free speech to some of my fellow travellers. I was uh, watching an episode of the uh, drum the other night and Jennifer Byrne was on uh, talking about this and there was a lawyer there, I can't remember his name, I don't know whether anyone else saw that episode, but he did point out that we have some of the strongest anti-vilification laws in the world and so they should be able to take care of any extremes in this way and I think both he and Jennifer were pretty much saying what you're saying. You have a, a, a lovely analogy in your book, uh, Malcolm, uh, about a person walking past a window and seeing a bar fight, a little glimpse of it and not getting the context. Can you tell us all about what happened to you and why you came up with that analogy? Yeah, I'm, I'm an ex-satirist, I think. Um, uh, you really got dusted up, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, and satire, um, to, to extend what David was saying, I think it's very much about the relationship that exists between you and your reader or, or your listener, or at least how you perceive it. You can offend members of your family until the cows come home because they know, uh, you know, all of those nuances and, and, and all of what you are beneath that um, uh, that, that allows them to absorb the offence and um, uh, very often you're offending them with the opposite intention you're, what you're what you're saying when you're when you're saying something uh, very um, uh, violent or horrible to your to your brother or sister um, might actually be a, an expression of affection so if you expand that out to the world, I think in the in the you know call it pre-social media days, whatever, the 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 writer had a sense of the relationship with their audience. That in my case, I'd written a Saturday column for five years, so that's that's 250 columns where I'd often put on voices, put on different hats, um, taken the Mickey out of myself, done all sorts of you know played all sorts of literary games. Um, and so I had a sense of my audience as being as if we we're in a terrace house, sitting around together, um, swapping stories among us. Now, in the in the social media world, your audience is not just those people, and in fact, many of the audience are people who walk are walking past the doorway, and all they see is a, is a split second of what you're doing, and that split second can be you know, taken, of course, all of the context and all of that relationship mm. is stripped out of it and what they're seeing is, is just a snapshot. It might just be a headline, but it could be something where they, they grasp the exact opposite of your of your meaning. And, mm. and you know, that happened to me when I, when I wrote something that was directed very much at a type of racist white male. Um, uh, and of course, for the people <laughs> walking by and getting a glimpse, I was that racist white male that um, that I was attacking. So, the thrust of my argument was was turned exactly on my on its head. I found myself at the bottom of one of those those pylons that that happen fairly fairly regularly now. But I think it goes back to um, writers having to shake off that sense of of audience, which is a great shame because the closer you feel to your audience, the more risks you're going to take, the more fun you're going to have with them, the, the, the deeper you're going to get with them. Um, and I've never been cancelled or silenced or anything like that. But when you get beaten up, it does, for most of us, it tends to modify your future behaviour. And, you know, in my case, I've become a l less of a, a risk-taking uh, mm. writer. Mm. And you I'm say you have to... You, 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 you well, kind of rise to the... Yeah, when I get beaten up, which is regularly, yeah. um, I, I take it... I, I, it's often gendered. It, it, it's they're trying to silence a woman's voice, and that just makes me so angry. And it's like I'm going to come back harder and angrier and... 
um, because I, I feel like women have been silenced, you know, for centuries, for millennia, and if I am given this privilege of having a voice and a platform... But are you getting beaten up it? by your intended target? So um, you, you know well it's, it's the other side of the argument who, who's going well at It's you. the people who buy the Australian. Yeah, exactly. You are, you are the, <laughs> the natural enemy, so you, exactly, you, you exactly. anticipate. And you feel good about it. No, 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 I don't feel you good don't about it because okay. I think writing is all about confidence. Mm. And I don't know if going on the radio is all about confidence. Oh, I can you, uh, I'll tell you about the text line in a moment. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> for me, I always feel like, you know, I've had it since The Bride Stuart Bear, since Shiver, my first novel. I feel like they're trying to break my confidence. They're trying to crack me. Um, and so for me, my way of getting through that in terms of keeping mental stability somehow is trying not to engage. And even the mildest columns that I write, like today I've written about a, a snow petrel, found, uh, not a snow petrel, an Antarctic petrel found in, in Victoria, mm. on the coast of Victoria. Mm. It's wonderful, but I know I, if I go and I look under the comments, under my column, they'll be going for it. It's a forum for them, it's a community, it's a club, it's usually a misogynist club, you know, so I've, I've trained myself, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't engage, but sometimes, you know, it, it filters through to me yeah. and it's like, I'm not going to stop until they make me stop because I see too many good women who do stop. It's just too hard. There's, there's a few prominent journalists in the UK, female journalists, who've, they've been rendered voiceless this year in the UK and it's like, no, I loved reading you. Um, so for my gender, I, I will keep on going mm. until I'm stopped. Mm. <laughs> of course, uh, you know, I mean, if we talk about intersectionality, though, I mean, gosh, this as we get into, I can imagine there would be people who'd be like, oh, look at these four, you know, middle-aged white people having yeah. a whinge about, you know, about being people complaining about their views. Um, but I guess... Well, I don't know what I don't know where to put that. I can only really write for what I know, I suppose. But I was going to tell you about the text line, which is hilarious, really, at the ABC, because um, I think when I'm at, I'm not, no for sure, but I think when you when you bring up um, the ABC Listen app, there is a way where you can kind of directly text as you're listening. Hmm. Oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have got too much time on their hands, Wendy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so there are hundreds of these things. Oh, you pronounce that road long. You know, it's uh, Jarvis, Jervis, Jesus Christ. Um, you know, it goes on. You, you apologise to the German people listening immediately. Single mothers will not put up with this. And it just goes on all, all morning. Yeah. And you know, it's a funny thing. Can you imagine if you had that at your workplace with someone over your mm -hmm. shoulder going, yeah, yeah, you misspelt that, you did that. And I really, I really, really will admit to you that sometimes I find it very enervating. Mm. Yes, I'm but don't stop. <laughs> well, I won't stop annoying people. I, don't think, <laughs> I think it's in the DNA, quite frankly. And as, as, as Kingsley Amos once said, there's little point in writing unless you're anno annoying somebody. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we've got to do that. But, yes, it's just this, con it's this feedback thing. And what I wanted to get to, I don't know, how much time do we have left, folks? We've got heaps. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to get to, um, Malcolm, you, you talk about the idea of, and I guess we could all talk about this, about, about kindness about you think that there we should be more tolerant and kind, stop, pause, think, you know, before we react. But um, as I say, you know, with the World Wide Web being in its adolescence, I mean, is, is that a, where do you see all this going, I suppose? Can, can you give me uh, that question on notice? Because I've got a great quote that I wrote down yesterday yep. that's going to take me about 60 seconds to look up. No, no, up. no, you could. I've got <laughs> 15 minutes to go. What do you think about taking a pause and a breath and a moment? Oh, well, the great thing about, about being a historian is I can take a breath for about 120 years before <laughs> I've got to write about it. Um, <laughs> it is interesting, though, because I found it very, very easy to write about mm. what was going on in 1790 mm. because they're all blokes with funny hats, uh, drinking rum, uh, 
people don't feel that this is them. They are funny old people in the past. Mm. When I'm writing about issues that are happening today, I can be far more nuanced and careful, but people's hackles still rise. Mm. Because they're saying, this is me, or this is, in the case at the moment, I'm writing about things that happened early in the 20th century. Mm. This is my grandma. Mm. So people can connect with that. Mm. And a lot of offence is based on personal perceptions and is this something that is attacking me in some mm, way mm. and I do try and take the time when I write to work out whether I'm writing something for a good reason mm. or whether I'm writing something for a cheap gag mm. um, and I think there's a responsibility that we have is to not upset people gratuitously um, but I'm happy to upset people deliberately. Yeah. <laughs> I often say to Robbie, my partner on air, this is really going to annoy everybody, just watch, and I'll just do it on purpose, because mm. I don't think, you know, I mean, it's not good listening anyway, me not have, you know, having an opinion. I mean, Malcolm just said he had a chip at me out the back there for always being mean to golfers on air, but I <laughs> refuse to back away from that, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, just before Malcolm's story, but on, on being mean to people, I'm in my next book, I'm going to be mean to writers' festivals. Ah. Uh, oh, <laughs> why? Please yeah. elaborate. No, I'm not going to be mean <laughs> on, to writers' festivals per se, but I am going to be mean about some of the woke culture that exists. When uh, Schreiber up in Brisbane was mm, cancelled yeah, for, yeah. for daring yeah, to yeah, write yeah. about mm. people of a different culture or different perspective, that made me quite cross um, because although I am not an Indigenous person, my history is in, in, intertwined with mm. Indigenous Australians. Mm. So I feel that I should be able to write about that shared experience. The point that I'll be making in the next book is Australia's first great female writer, Catherine Helen Spence, uh, said uh, she couldn't write male characters. So I'm saying, well, why is she even trying? She's a woman. How dare she culturally appropriate the identity of, you know, mm. people from, from different mm. genders? Yeah. And you can't say that about a woman writer. Mm. You can't say that about a person of colour. Mm. But we seem to be moving into a, a world where people are wanting to put people in little boxes and not allow them to to look at the space between those boxes. Mm, mm. And it is those intersections and those spaces that I think is where most of the interesting action mm. happens. I think, I think Nikki is right. I think there is a bit of a rumbling I detected too. I mean, I picked up Twitter mm. this morning and they're arguing again about cancelling Enid Blyton. I mm. thought we were through this 30 years ago, mm -hmm. for goodness sake. But anyway, there it mm. is again. Oh, that quote. Yeah. quote. So kindness. Um, I think we're at a moment now where kindness has been turned into a into a brand of its own uh, mm -hmm. online, and kindness has been weaponised as as a a stick to mm. to hit the unkind with. And what 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 I found was was a quote from the Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who who gave a speech um, uh, in relation to herself being you know attacked by the kind people. Um, she said, there are very many social media savvy people who are choking on sanctimony and lacking in compassion, who can fluidly pontificate on Twitter about kindness but are unable to actually show kindness. She says later, what matters is not goodness but the appearance of goodness mm. online. Yeah. We are yeah. no longer human beings, we are now angels jostling to out-angel one another. God help us, it is obscene. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That, you are not on social media. Uh, so yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I lurk a little bit and I have a private uh, Instagram <laughs> account, but I'm not, I'm not an active, I'm not right. on Twitter. And so not you, you, you're, not, you, you're not on Twitter, so you don't know what goes on there. But of course we set, do you, like, do you sort of death scroll? Do you look, do yeah, you yeah, I, I, I lurk from time lurk? to time. Oh, you're a lurker, yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah. And, what um, do you think about there's that? No, there's no profit in it at all. I no, no. <laughs> but it is extraordinary. You must be amazed as being a, you know, a, a newspaper man from way back to see what happens on social media become a headline story. I mean, it's extraordinary the way it's leaked through, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And look, 
as you said earlier, democratisation of voices is something that we're actually all in favour of in, yeah. in principle. It's, it's the effect of that once it's happened and, and whether that is, is allowed to lead the subsequent news agenda. And for the organisations that, that Nikki and I work for, um, it's not so much that there's a, there's a kind of left-right ideological bias, mm. but there's a, there's a digitally driven numerical bias towards, you know, number one, number one in the, in the current hit rate. And so the, uh, we, we can think whatever we want to think about what people are saying online, but the, what's, what's happened to our, our news media is that everybody's pouring into the one mm. opening because that's number one at the moment and everybody's hungry for, for those same hits that everyone else is over, which, which leads to, as I'm sure we, we, you know, everybody can see, the news media is totally dominated by one issue per week. Yeah. It is the only thing everybody talks about. And then the next week, it's another thing is the only mm -hmm. thing everybody talks about. So the, the diversity um, of coverage um, that we would have without that mechanism has been lost. Mm, mm. And what about the idea, do you think about um, kindness? I mean, is it, yeah. you know, um, it's been commodified, o o obviously, but yeah. what about a personal practice? What do you practice on that one? Oh, uh, look, for me, the tuning fork for my writing is beauty. Mm. So I want beautiful writing. I, I, you know, in my spare time, I read poetry. Um, yes, I, I will always veer towards kindness, but I loved um, that word, the sanctimony yep. of mm. kindness. You know, it, I feel like it's so true on Twitter. A, a good couple of years ago, I probably shouldn't be saying this story, but I still find it so funny. Um, one of the champions of female Australian writing and another female author, I've never met either of them, either of them but they had this huge Twitter, th Twitter thing yeah. about my writing and me as a person and I, I was alerted to this by some other writers and I thought gosh I, I don't even know them but particularly the one who presents themselves as a real champion of female writing it's like gee this is interesting what I just let this happen or you know it's they're talking in my world the world of novelists and literature and all that I thought I'm going to write a column about females and um, you know the, the wonderful females who support each other and mm. lift up each other and all that kind of thing and so I contacted both of them I said can I quote you <laughs> <laughs> because basically yeah. um, that it's been a public forum yeah. on Twitter what they'd been talking about with me and I thought it was so interesting that their brand was support mm. but mm. in that Twitter world I feel like some people just they don't think that it's it's a public forum, you know, and they should be thinking of that. And of course, they were like, "Oh no, no, I, I had a headache that day, or you know, I, <laughs> I, 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 my my children had the flu, and I wasn't thinking properly when I was typing it." And of course, I didn't quote them, and I, mm. and I really wasn't intending to, but I was just fascinated by what is the psychology behind that, and I would never do anything like that um, in a public forum mm. like social media or mm. really personally yeah. in any way too. It's, it's the blurring of the public and private Yeah, spheres it's like people that, that forget. And no, I was going to say, it's interesting in your book, Malcolm, you say the difference is that when it's written down, the print, when it goes into print, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, well, and certainly with Falau, it, it's written in the Bible or so, his, his version of the Bible says. Um, I, I look at it in a, a similar but slightly different way. Now, what I mourn is the loss of person-to-person -person engagement, mm -hmm. um, that mm. the, this medium seems to build a wall between us. When I started out as a journalist, a friend of mine said, every time somebody writes a nasty letter over something you've written, mm. you find them, phone them up and talk to them. Really? And, and, and that was a rule. I didn't get that many letters, so I had the time to, <laughs> to, to actually do it. And, you know, the nastier, the more imperative it is to mm. call them. Mm. And, of course, you know, they've written something saying, you're, you're an idiot, you should die. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you find them up and, oh, you know, yeah. hi. And they go, oh, um, hi, I hope you didn't take it too personally. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, but it was really nice and it was always a, a, an act of reconciliation. Yeah. Mm. What I do mourn and, you know, okay, I sound like a, a premature old fart here, but I, I mourn those days when you could realistically establish person to person 
um, communication, <laughs> which social media, because of the volume of yeah, it, Yeah, well, I was just laughing there because when I first started at the ABC, I got a couple of those and uh, I said, because your phone numbers all come up, people. I just want you oh. to know that. <laughs> when you text, there are the phone numbers. I thought, I'll ring this person. And um, the whole rest, <laughs> it was funny, the whole floor is going, don't ring, ring, don't ring, don't ring her. Yeah, 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 don't yeah, 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 really yeah. Don't I'm No, same. I'm going to ring her, all right. <laughs> no, I ring her. And um, everyone was like, eh, <laughs> singing. And I'm so, you know, it's Wendy Harmon. Oh, you know, I, I didn't mean, I didn't mean that to go to you. Um, oh, I mean, actually, no, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, I actually really do, do like the show. And I think that you're, that you're marvellous. It's just something that I, and you know, and this person was like dying, you could tell. But mm -hmm. then it got to the point where there were hundreds of them and I really had to give up. <laughs> <laughs> <You know. laughs> the one, oh. <laughs> I get my, I get myself, I've learned a bit. I've been, you know, bashed up a few times on Twitter for things. But one of the last ones that I had, which I thought, was hilarious was I won't get go into the whole thing but it was uh, you know a Philip Curry you know from the AFR and I was defending him because there are so many people online now that just hate every journalist mm, guts mm, mm, you mm. know so I was defending him over something and then <laughs> they all turned on me and the thing that I love most was that I was in accused of having internalized misogyny <laughs> <laughs> I would probably <laughs> that you would imagine. I hope that we'd have internalised misogyny. You know, that was kind of fun. But I mean, I, um, I, 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 uh, I'm quite active on Twitter because, you know, I get bored, and um, I want to put, you know, stuff out there about what's been on the show. I often will put things out on Twitter because I might use it for radio the next day or whatever. But I, like you, Nikki, I've certainly, you know, learned to avoid oh, pylons. Just to keep yourself my sane. Way around, you know. yeah. Where's it all going, do you think? <laughs> Where's it going? I, I wouldn't say it's an upward trajectory into the light. I feel like it's getting worse. Do you think? Yeah, I think maybe you've got the right idea, but I feel like for me, uh, you know, I'm kind of urged by publishers, you know, to have some kind of platform for my books when they come out. I, I just went on Instagram in the last six months because they've got a novel coming out. And it's like, oh God, do I really want to do this. But for me, Instagram seems like a much lovelier forum than, than the <coughs> bear pit that is Twitter. Yeah. And it is funny though, isn't it too, that the most combative people will then, <laughs> the next tweet they'll put out, here's a picture of my cat that's on my <laughs> keyboard. And you know, you think, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I hope that thing turns out and scratches your eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> what about for you, David? Can we, can we expect a kinder polity anytime soon? Um, are we going to go back to the days? I know that you've uh, written about you know, how, what debate was like in the early days of the colony, people standing around in street corners and gathering yeah. crowds. I mean, the question I suppose I should ask, have, and I actually... This is what I actually think. This kind of opinion has always been there. Absolutely. If we mm. were kidding ourselves that uh, we weren't sitting at home and watching people on the radio or listening to people on the radio, watching on TV, going, oh, my God, you're a dickhead. But now we go, oh, my God, you're a dickhead. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the only difference? I think the public square is a very different place. So even when I was a kid, I used yeah. to go down to the Domain in Sydney and you'd see some weirdo in a toga standing on his soapbox, <laughs> rabbiting on about communism and aliens, and I thought, gee, this is great stuff. <laughs> uh, but when you gather around, you know, some of the greatest uh, political speechifiers, the most charismatic politicians, somebody like Billy Hughes, who had a complete disconnection with truth, he was able to simultaneously, you know, hold five different views before breakfast and join six political parties. I mm. mean, he was amazing. But he, when he got up and spoke, was incredibly charismatic and he could sway people. But he could only sway the 200 people who were standing on the, the Balmain corner mm. that he was standing on. And they might go back to their homes and there might be a bit of a chat about it at the local pub and then things would die down. So the public square then was a couple of hundred people. Now the public square is tens of millions of people mm. are able to, to pile on. Yeah. And I think that's the dangerous place that we now live in, 
uh, and it's, it's a place that encourages mob rule. Uh, it's a place where people join together into factions to vent their, their spleen. Mm -hmm. And um, I think things are getting worse mm -hmm. uh, and will continue to get worse. <laughs> Uh, right. And and there are there are politicians who could aim in Australia for a more civilised discourse. They could give each other the time mm -hmm. of day. Back 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 in the day, if you had a mild tiff in Parliament, there'd be a few apologies. Sometimes you'd even resign the prime ministership, and say, you know, just a few years ago we had a New South Wales premier who resigns over a bottle of of of, of, of Grange. That doesn't happen any, anymore. Mm -hmm. People embed themselves mm. in positions they refuse to retreat mm. and the best form of defence for many of them is attack. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's the discourse that's happening in our polity is affecting the way that we right. are relating as a people. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think we've come to the end of this. We're not going to take any questions. Because you've had your say. And we don't have any answers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no answers. <laughs> you just jump on social media and yell at us. <laughs> that or was don't. the most shit session <laughs> <laughs> I've ever been to. <laughs> Thanks for coming this afternoon. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Wendy.